Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Nutrition Lifestyles with Kim and Joanne. I'm Joanne. And I'm Kim. Today, we have with us Dr. Janice Laster, who is a quadruple board certified physician in internal medicine, gastroenterology, obesity medicine, and physician nutrition specialist. Whew. You already know she is a wealth of knowledge. She completed her residency and fellowship training at Georgetown University Hospital in Washington, D.C., then obtained additional training with the Nestle Clinical Nutrition Fellowship and an Advanced Bariatric Endoscopic Fellowship in Madrid, Spain. After realizing there was a lack of training and emphasis in nutrition education and obesity treatment in traditional practice, she decided to start a practice named Gut Theory Total Digestive Care to address this rising problem head-on in Washington, D.C. Her practice encompasses a multifaceted approach to care to include comprehensive medical history review, diet history, and treatment plan, and adjunct therapy with pharmacological weight loss medications and minimally invasive endoscopic weight loss procedures. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Lester. Hello, ladies. I am Janice Laster. I'm a gastroenterologist. I practice in Washington, D.C. Let's see, board certified in internal medicine, gastroenterology, because I somehow love schooling, then obesity <laughs> medicine and nutrition. And then my practice is focused on gut health and weight management. I am originally a Southern girl, like you ladies, from Birmingham, Alabama. Okay. And then did, let's see, okay. a college at Spelman. And then, let's see, met school in Texas. And then fell in love, came to DC, love DC, and came here for residency and fellowship um, at Georgetown. And let's see, that's sort of the long and short of my kind of professional me and kind of where I came from. And let's see, sort of why I got into kind of weight management and gut health was sort of seeing the same thing over and over again in clinical practice, especially with patients of color, minority patients, low income patients, everybody with the same exact problems with high blood pressure, diabetes, hypercholesterol, fatty liver, everybody with abdominal pain, constipation, (laughs) this entire country is constipated with low fiber. Abdominal pain, sort of feeling bloated and nausea, and just seeing far too many patients with kind of the consequences of those things as well. So having leading the diabetes and high blood pressure leading to kidney failure, people being on dialysis, amputations, mm. heart attacks, strokes. And then I started thinking back to when I was in med school, and I remember before learning about like high blood pressure and diabetes, and I just thought like I think most Black people think mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. you know when you mm-hmm. get older you're just going to get high blood pressure right. and diabetes, right? Because right. that's what we see in our families, and that's one of those things. And I realized mm-hmm. in school, wait a minute, we don't, we can change this trajectory. Actually, we don't really have to have this mm-hmm. it just takes kind of education. And then I realized during kind of the rigor of kind of residency and fellowship training, the kind of, mm-hmm. you don't have time. It is just keeping people alive. People are trying to die around mm-hmm. you all the time. And that is all you're doing is trying to keep people alive. And then I realized that's just kind of the bare minimum, right? Like we're not getting them. We're not, we're just putting band-aids and playing whack-a-mole and putting new pills on things. And we're not really fixing kind of the underlying problem. I know patients that smoke or eat a lot of processed meats have a higher risk for colon cancer. I'm just Mm -hmm. doing the colonoscopy, taking the polyps out, which is great because Mm -hmm. it's preventing colon cancer. But the problem Mm -hmm. is, can we talk about these cigarettes and talk about kind of this processed meats and that sort of thing and changing (laughs) that mindset around it? So I realized just during medical training that kind of traditional medical training is more about kind of the secondary treatment of things rather than the primary prevention and trying to change people's thoughts and ideas around health Mm -hmm. um, and what is actual health and healthcare and changing people's ideas around eating healthier and kind of getting to a healthier weight. Um, and preventing those things from happening so that we can live better lives. And so <laughs> that's sort of my my shtick and my fun and how I have fun with my patients. The most fun part is finding cool ways for people to to eat healthy, but it not be something that's, you know, that doesn't taste good or it's bougie and tasteless. So that is the kind of the fun part of my job and seeing people get off blood pressure medicines and and offer diabetes medications and <laughs> able to walk upstairs without, you know, huffing and puffing and feeling good in those genes again. So that is, and their family members saying, your face looks small. So, you know, black people's way of, you know, 
sly way giving you a compliment, but these are, that's, so that's me and kind of my, my joy and loving what I do. I love it. So your practice get theory, right? So you do a lot of bariatric surgeries. So bariatric procedures, so endoscopic weight loss procedures, which are kind of a different spectrum, the bariatric surgery. Okay. So on one end, you have gastric bypass and gastric sleeve, which people kind of clutch their pearls and think, oh my God, no, that's too drastic. I don't want that. And sort of the other end is people telling you, oh, just go lose weight, which are kind Mm -hmm. of diet and exercise and people get sick of that. And sort of in the middle is what I do, which are endoscopic. They're minimally invasive, mm-hmm. so they're incisionless. You go home the exact same day. And so there's a few. There's the um, intragastric balloon, mm-hmm. which is a balloon that we place inside of your, your belly for six months um, that kind of decreases motility um, and is space occupying too. So you is teaching you the same time I'm reinforcing in clinic um, decreased portion sizes, mm-hmm. um, but it also slows your motility. So you feel full, more full in between meals, so you eat less. And so it's kind of showing you. And so you have a physical representation of what I'm teaching you, which is not overeating and, sh- and retraining you. But, you know, we've all grown up being told to eat everything on your plate. Mm-hmm. But and so that means you eat without thinking about and actually realizing that I'm actually was full, you know, 10 bites ago. Right. And so but this balloon helps you with that. And because if you overeat with the balloon in place, you're going to feel horrible, mm-hmm. nausea, bloated and vomit. And so that's kind of triggering your brain to say and to kind of get in the habit over those six months to say, Oh, this is what portion sizes are. This is what I need. The average American eats double the amount of meat they need, double the amount of kind of everything when I talk to patients about portion sizes. So that's sort of how the balloon works. And then the endoscopic sleeve gastroplasty is suturing the inside of the stomach from the inside um, to create kind of a tubular stomach. So different from surgery in that with the gastric sleeve, you cut that part of the stomach off and it's gone forever. But with an endoscopic sleeve, you are just basically invaginating it inward. And so you create a tubular stomach. Mm-hmm. So it's working a couple of ways in that normally when you eat, your stomach is able to expand to allow you to eat more food and accommodate, mm-hmm. right? But with the sutures in place, you don't get that. So you therefore are not able to eat as much. The other thing mm-hmm. is normally your stomach has peristalsis that allows it to propose and push things through to your small bowels you can keep putting more food in. This doesn't allow that either. So it slows your motility in that way. The other thing is we leave the fundus in place. We don't suture that part. So Mm -hmm. you have like a little bit of a pouch. So you guys know that ghrelin is what's secreted from those stretch receptors from food being in the fundus. So you have this automatic kind of built-in mechanism that's telling you, oh, we can turn that signal off because there's food there. So you have sort of hitting you from a bunch of different ways to kind of help in those ways of kind of decreasing the portion sizes, decreasing the amount of times you're eating throughout the day and slowing that motility. So and all at the same time, all in the background, kind of what we're reinforcing in clinic and retraining you how to eat and what is actually good food and getting rid of those processed foods and that sort of thing. There's a couple other procedures that one is being FDA approved now is called POSE, and that's kind of also kind of a suturing device. And there's one that everybody finds very creepy, but it's called Aspire Assist. So if you everybody gives a chance, just look at the Colbert um, Aspire. It is hilarious, but it's basically sort of like a peg tube, basically. What? Um, <laughs> oh my goodness. Everybody finds it very creepy, but it really works. No. So everybody thinks that's like, believe me, that's horrible. It's, I mean... From a physician standpoint, I get it. You know what I mean? Because I know Uh how much people struggle, but the average person thinks it's awful. But basically, that's sort of a peg tube, and you can't overdo it, so it's not blaming. You can only do 30, like, uh, I think it's 30 clicks in a month. And well, no, I think it's three clicks a day. So you can only click it three times. And so after Uh you eat, you have to go to the bathroom and you attach it to a drain, and you have to drain it like 20 minutes after you eat. Wow. The thought behind it is that you're basically draining about uh, 40%, I think, of your meal after you eat. So you're not getting 40% of that. Um, But the studies have shown that people change their Mm -hmm. eating habits because they're seeing what's emptied out. And so when you eat something that's bad and greasy and gross, it looks like that coming out. So people don't Mm. still want to see that. They say, oh my God, that's what I ate. And so it gives them that I shouldn't have had that kind of feedback. 
So that's what people have seen in mm. studies, actually, that it changed, even though it seems gross, it changes kind of the way people eat because they have to see it. And it also, you have to chew slowly. And the average American, if you guys have noticed, they, we eat too fast. Mm-hmm. We just are shoveling food in our mouth. And so you have to chew everything. So if you know, if you chew it, you eat slower and you give yourself time to get full. And so, but if you overeat and uh, you don't chew completely, then your clog, your tubing will get clogged. So it kind of shows you better wow. behavior. Wow. That that, <laughs> our eyes were like bulging. We're like, what? <laughs> I'm, I'm taking back Joanne. <laughs> <laughs> I know, everybody seen. doesn't what I tell them about. They're like, I always, I love to put it in my presentations when I do grand rounds because and I love showing the video because everybody's like, oh, that is horrible. Why would you do that? But if you're a person who struggled with excess weight your entire life and you're kind of afraid of anything else, you want something that's long term, then it works. I mean, I got it works. you. I it's got not for you. everybody. That's for sure. <laughs> Hey guys, if you're like us, you love using cleaning products in your home that does not have any harsh chemicals. If you have never heard of Branch Basics before, you're going to be so thankful Kim and I introduced you to them. Branch Basics is plant and mineral based, fragrance free, has no harmful preservatives, is human safe, biodegradable, not tested on any animals and is non-GMO. These cleaning supplies make safe cleaning so simple. Now, here's what sold us when we started using Branch Basics. You know how when you buy a product that is supposed to be green and you go in to use it and it doesn't get the job done? Well, Branch Basics actually gets the job done. From bathrooms to high chairs, kitchen counters, and kids' toys, it gets the job done and we love it. If you want to try it out yourself, Go to branchbasics.com and use the discount code Nutrition Lifestyles to get 15% off their starter kit. You are going to be so happy you took us up on this offer. So listen, you, you know, we see all these TV, TV shows that are around bariatric procedures mm-hmm. and you'll see like the doctor saying, okay, you got to lose 50 pounds before you can come in and mm-hmm. do this procedure. So what is the criteria How is someone considered to be appropriate? Do they go through the diet route of what they eat first or retraining them on how to eat properly? Or do we jump straight into bariatric procedures? So I think everybody's a little bit different. I, in my practice, that everybody knows the background is nutrition Mm -hmm. and what you're eating and what you're putting in. Yes, Mm -hmm. some people, if you need to lose 100 pounds, the odds are you're going to get to a point where you get to a plateau and you need a little bit more help to kind of get you to your goal. And so I use it and I tell people, just like you have gastric bypass, or which is kind of one of the most dramatic, or a duodenal switch, or kind of the more dramatic bariatric surgeries, I see patients all the time that have regrained that weight back in some. Mm. So nothing is foolproof. Nothing is kind of right. easy. There's nothing easy or magical about anything you do. So I tell patients that we always start with, we have to, you have to be ready and you have to be committed. So patients that just come in and say, I want to look good in one month and I want to have this procedure <laughs> that I'm not the person for you. And people will, some people that'll do it, but I know you're not, you're going to pay this money for this procedure. You're going to lose it initially. But if you continue to eat a dozen of donuts a day right. and you uh-huh. don't have that mechanism to tell you that this is not kind of what the goal is and not what healthy eating is, you're still going to regain it back and have fatty liver and heartburn and all these other things that we were trying to prevent. So I think it should always be kind of accompanied with kind of somebody, either a physician that's had nutrition training mm. or a very good kind of GI dietitian. Because you have to have you have to have that that component that teaches people what healthy eating is, and also mm-hmm. tell and I, I like to empower patients too to let them know kind of what is the consequence of healthy eating. So part of my like initial consultation is giving them the actual data. So I get you know on the internet and they get all of these kind of mixed signals of all these you know fad diets. I'm like mm. I, you don't have to you know count calories and count how many carbs you can have in a day and measure, you know, these are things that we're not, that's not living. And my goal is for people to live kind of normal lives. And I know I'm mm-hmm. not going to measure things out when you're trying to, when the world opens and we go out to eat again. Right. <laughs> but, right. So it's just trying to make things kind of easier and make more sense. But I think they always have to be in conjunction with kind of understanding this is a long, this is the rest of your life. This is not a quick fix. This is a lifestyle. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm very mm-hmm. glad that you said a well-trained GI dietitian 
story time. I always have a story. Dr. Lester, <laughs> I always have a story. So a couple years ago, there was a coworker of mine and she came to me and she was like, oh, Kim, you know what things can I do to eat better? Today, this is what I'm having for lunch. You know, she's a coworker. She's nice. I liked her. So I was like, well, you know, you need to start increasing your fruits and your vegetables. So, you know, fruits and vegetables were increased. Next thing you know, she comes to me with this whole entire paperwork talking about, oh, I told my um, doc- doctor about you and he's going to give me the root and why if I'm saying it properly. And Mm -hmm. he said that he wants you to fill this out, that you spoke to me. And I said, hold up, hold up, hold up. No, (laughs) ma'am. I am not your personal dietitian. You just gave me one suggestion at lunch. (laughs) Right. One suggestion. And she was like, oh, you know, I told him I've been working with you for seven months. No, you've worked at the hospital with me for seven months, but you have not worked personally with me for seven months. Oh my God. What is going on here? So, you know, she was all in her feelings, all upset, but I am not a GI dietitian. So I love the fact that you brought that out. Someone that is specialized and knows what they're doing. Because mm-hmm. it's a difference. And certain things that a GI, that my GI dietitians know that a hospital-based dietitian is not going to know. Mm-hmm, it's true. not what they're going to focus on. Right. My outpatient GI dietitians are not going to be able to help you at all with titrating tube feeds. Right, they're right. not there for it. <laughs> right. um, they have no interest. They don't want to handle TPN. They right. do not care. But if you have bloating, they got you. Right. If you are constipated, they will hook you up. If you have food intolerances and heartburn and they like, you know, there's things that we all talk about. We know when somebody has SIBO, we know how to treat it. I can send them to them and they help me with that. I know if you have, you know, if if I tell them, look, they're having some, their hair is thinning. I think they have some nutritional deficiencies. They are on it. They get a little skin. They're like, you know, I think I saw a skin rash on Mm -hmm. her. They're on it. They notice all of these small little things that a hospital base, if somebody's dying in the ICU on pressers, you are not concerned about the skin rash they right. have. <laughs> right, right, right. You're not looking. <laughs> exactly. It is a different situation. I don't think people recognize that they're just like they're, like we specialize. I mean, there's specialized training. Exactly. So, you know, I'm glad that you brought up the food aspect. So let's talk a little bit about that. Let's talk about the fried foods and all of the, the other junk foods that are very popular now. How do these foods impact the GI system? So I'm glad you brought that up. I've actually wrote a paper and did like a deep dive in kind of all of these foods to try to figure out because I just couldn't understand like why is it all of a sudden that the obesity rates were increasing over the last kind of 20 years? Like what is happening? Mm. And the other thing that's increased are these ultra processed foods. So it's kind of a spectrum. um, So that's typically people call junk food. They're ultra processed foods, right? So we range from unprocessed, like an apple is not processed, right? It's a minimally processed. So if you kind of change something to cook it or you, you know, heat something up or you take that apple and you blend it to make it applesauce, but you didn't add anything to it or you like lightly salt something or cure it, that's kind of minimally processed. But then you have ultra processed mm-hmm. when things become sort of unrecognizable, right? So what, did it, what is a Cheeto? Like where, there's not like a food <laughs> that you can think that, that came from, right? Right. You can't trace that back. So it's like genetically engineered, like a food product basically. Right. And so these are like what we call ultra processed. And there's a bunch of arguments right now about kind of systems to kind of organize them. But those are kind of what we describe as ultra processed foods. And so my deep dive was trying to figure out what were in these ultra processed foods that made them, that was that were causing us to have problems in the GI tract. And so a lot of them were in animal studies, but then there was one, because there's notoriously hard to do nutrition studies in humans, but they're also, they were able to do one at the NIH for 28 days. But what we saw in those ultra processed foods was, oh, A, over time, they were initially kind of got kind of characterized as generally recognized as safe, right? Mm -hmm. Because back in like the 50s, when the World Health Organization finally started bringing these things to to the table, they said, look, they're helping us put, make things shelf stable. They're making things cheaper. Everybody, people are at war and people all going back to work. We need things to be quicker. So there were only a few. And then they said, okay, WHO said, we're going to let the FDA figure it out and do these tests to make sure that there's only small amounts. They don't have long-term deleterious effects. Mm. And then the lobbyists came in in the 90s and said, they are taking too long. Mm. These things make us money. We need to just, they were safe before, they're all safe, just regard them as safe. And so they they won out over the FDA employees, but there was a bunch of them that spoke out and said, 
guys, we can't say these are safe. We said they were safe then because they were so, there were so few feuds with these in them, these right. additives and emulsifiers, that it was easy to say they were safe because you were getting so little. But mm-hmm. now it's sort of ubiquitous. If you go to the store now, like now I make kind of a list of products for my patients to eat because I, when I started looking to this, like when I was in training, I'm like, oh my God, everything you pick up has a list of all of these emulsifiers and additives. Right. And so- the study, the big, the, one of the biggest studies that one of them was kind of a mouse-based study that looked at polysorbate 80, um, carboxymethylcellulose are the two big ones, right? And so this was in mice, but what they found was that it caused basically small bowel inflammation. Mm-hmm. Um, it decreased, it changed your microbiome. It decreased the mucus layer in your small bowel. And so from a GI perspective, when you see kind of ulcers and stuff like that, that's, think of those as like on the macro level, kind of looking at it from a bigger view, it's kind of breaks in the skin, if you think of it that way. So those are in the small bowel. This allows things to get through the small bowel mucosa that shouldn't be there. Mm. And so you get bacteria, you get inflammation. So some people call, say they have inflammation. I don't think they realize what they're talking about, but that's what, they, that's what it really is. And that sets people up for metabolic syndrome, which is high blood pressure, diabetes, fatty liver. And then, so you, then you also change your microbiome. Also, they found that the rats that had the emulsifiers, they ate quicker. So it was called hyperphagia mm-hmm. because the foods were more palatable, which we see with like, that's why it's easy to eat a whole bag of chips because mm-hmm. it's a palatable food and it's easy to chew, easy to swallow. You don't have to chew a whole like, just, you know, gobble it right down. Mm-hmm. And also they, they found these, these mice had insulin resistance, which is the same thing. So people have prediabetes. Mm-hmm. So that same kind of trajectory. They also saw weight gain in that group as well. And elevated CRP markers, which are the inflammation. Mm-hmm. So fast forward that to kind of the human sort of model, um, because everybody said those are in rats, who cares? But Kevin Hall from the NIH did a study where they did a 28-day inpatient, but literally they gave these people everything. And it was a crossover study. One was an um, unprocessed group and one was an ultra processed, And then they switched them over in two weeks. And so what they did, though, to, to try to make it as even as possible is they matched them for everything. So even if it was in the ultra processed group, if let's say so one would have a chicken breast, another one would have chicken nuggets. Mm. One would have. So they kind of matched them that way. And if they weren't getting the same amount of fiber in the unprocessed, they would give them a fiber supplement. So they were trying to match them for micronutrients to with vitamins and trying to match each group to, to make sure there was nothing else confounding it. And what they found in just this two weeks, and I was like shocked, and, that, and he was too, actually. He couldn't believe this was what they saw, but they saw weight. So same thing from that mouse study. They saw weight gain in those two weeks from changing from the unprocessed to processed. They saw people's insulin resistance numbers go up. So they were on the route to having hyper insulin, insulin, insulin resistance. They saw their CRP, which is an inflammatory marker, go up. Their HDL, their cholesterol numbers went up. They showed, and what else? Their microbiome change. Oh, and their ghrelin numbers. So their hormone satiety numbers as well. They also found that patients ate more. So they had more hyperphagia in that group as well. And so their thought is, and why they put emulsifiers in foods in the first place and all of these kind of fast foods is they make, they're more palatable. They make them softer. So that's why they put them in mayos and salad dresses. They make them prettier. So they're more pleasing to the eye. They're the food colorings that make things better. All of these kind of things. And so the thought is that other part of that in kind of these junk foods are you'll notice that I'll tell patients all the time is when you're sitting around, you have to be mindful when you're eating. So I'm not telling you to never eat chips again in your life, but what I'm saying is to to portion size them because it will be you can easily sit on the sofa and eat an entire bag of chips bag. and then you're not full right so then you right. go eat a meal after that so you just had this entire bag and they're like but why am i not full and i'm like because your brain has a signal that says i need nutrients and so your brain is expecting a nutrient and so it's going to continue to send you that signal that it's hungry until it gets that need met the need isn't met with this this bag of chips so now you've had an entire wow. bag of chips which didn't fulfill the need of that you were hungry and now you go to eat an entire different meal as well. It's in order to kind of shut off that trigger, that kind of warning. So that it's kind of a long-winded answer to they are deleterious in several ways and they all contribute to excess weight. And that was kind of one of the things I saw too with people that the difference is that, that while we were seeing so much excess weight, which kind of led to all the metabolic syndromes and the high blood pressure, the diabetes, mm-hmm. the fatty liver, all of that stuff, was these patients ate more processed foods and these are ultra processed foods, and then they had kind of all the other downstream effects. So that is kind of one of the first recommendations I make, and it's like the low hanging fruit, the easy things. So I'm like, all right, let's cut out these processed foods and processed meats and 
then people come back and like, I cannot believe I lost right? eight pounds. And all I did was change that one thing. Just imagine when I really get in there. But mm-hmm. um, those are the, the easy things. And once you get people to change, it's trying to get them to see it. It definitely changes your microbiome. So it changes sort of what you crave as mm-hmm. well. So even though you love those, you know, Doritos, everybody loves Doritos. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, once, even though you think you have to have them and you crave them, that after getting you off of them for a week or two, you'll find that you don't crave them as much anymore. So that is yeah. true. Processed food and junk food is real. <laughs> it is. It is. It is. So I was thinking about this as you were talking, because you made a statement about ulcers. And those of you out there who know my journey and know what got me into focusing into gut health know that I had H. pylori a few years back, jacked up my gut. (laughs) Okay. And it led to food intolerances, leaky gut and all that. Mm. And Unfortunately, the doctors that I was seeing, my gastroenterologist, you know, they gave me the antibiotics to cure, to kill the H. pylori. That did even more damage to my gut, Mm -hmm. but no one was able to, you know, help me with the after effects. And that's what got me into it, healing my gut and bringing myself back. And that's what I do for other people. So my question for you, Dr. Laster, is how common is H. pylori? Because I would say a good amount, I can't, say the percentage off the top of my head, but a good amount of people who come to me who are having food intolerances, who have bloating, stomach pain, they've tested positive for H. pylori. Mm-hmm. How common is H. pylori? It's pretty common, actually. And so I always test for it. Um, if anybody who comes in with those symptoms, I, I'm going to look for celiac. I'm going to look for H. pylori. I'm look, uh, those, are, uh, those are just like the easy test. So uh, that's number one, what I'm going to start. And then I'm going to say, are you constipated? So those are like the top three things. (laughs) But H. pylori is actually pretty common. It's kind of, it used to not be, but it's pretty kind of ubiquitous now with Mm -hmm. kind of in the environment. And especially if it's somebody that's been in your home that's had it as well. And everything you said, I'm like, yep, that happens because you take the antibiotics. And so antibiotics are a gift and a curse because- It treats the H. pylori. And the H. pylori, we have to treat it because oh, left untreated, it can become gastric cancer, right? Wow. So that's the problem with H. pylori. It can cause, cause a malt lymphoma. That's why we treat it. But And it can cause ulcers and people come in vomiting blood and having dark stool. And so you can have really big gastric ulcers and really bleed kind of significantly from that. So we have to treat it. But we also have to tell people, okay, look, after you have this course of 10 to 14 days of three different, you know, antibiotics, it can be pretty intense on the gut because it's wiping out the H. pylori, it's also wiping out the good guys. Right. And so what do we leave bad? The big, bad, ugly ones, right? That mm-hmm. cause the bloating and the food intolerance. And and people don't believe it, but I always, when I'm, I'm seeing people for the first time, let's say they've been, they are negative for H. pylori now, but they would treat it forward in the past. I think they probably think I'm crazy, but then finally get to the point, like, I'm not, I promise you, I'm not crazy. But if you had antibiotics for any sort of thing, you've had H. pylori in the past, you can have kind of a post-infectious kind of IBS that lasts for a long time. Yes. People are like, but that was two years ago. I'm like, yeah. Yeah. Mm. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I've wow. had people 20 years mm-hmm. post their H. pylori diagnosis come to me and I'm like, Listen, I'm telling you now, this is what it is. The H. pylori did damage and now we have to reverse that damage. And then it's longstanding because then we don't, nobody ever does a thing to help kind of protect themselves afterwards, right? So Mm -hmm. they continue eating these pro-inflant, this kind of this diet full of kind of processed foods, which doesn't help the matter. A bunch of dairy doesn't help the matter. Mm -hmm. Um, And they're not eating kind of whole foods. And and some of that is because because they get intolerant to kind of real food too. Because when they eat Brussels sprouts or broccoli or Mm -hmm. beans and they get bloated and they say, oh, I can't eat those things. So I'm sure you see this all the time. People come to you and they eat like four items every day. Yeah, um, because they restricted themselves so much. Yeah, but it also make. I mean, and that, I laugh, but it's not funny because it also it perpetuates things and makes it worse because that mm-hmm. means over time now you're ruining the microbiome diversity even more, mm-hmm. and now it's just a harder rut to get out of to kind of get you back on real diet to kind of free grow that gut microbiome and get mm-hmm. over those intolerances and those bloating and all that stuff. So mm-hmm. yes, H. pylori is real. The antibiotics that we use to treat it also kind of make things haywire. Um, mm-hmm. Yes. So it is any antibiotics for any reason. And I tell people sometimes, I mean, if you're in the hospital with a staph aureus pneumonia, then we got to give you antibiotics. Right. So they're a gift and a curse. They save your life, but then now yeah, you have these GI symptoms. So mm-hmm. yes. 
God bless you, because we need we need our GI dietitians to help us. Because <laughs> right? it takes these small changes, and and people don't want to hear it, but it's slow. The yeah. process is slow to kind of get you back there and get you eating normally and get right. the bloating. It's slow. Yeah. And then I have to tell people because they're like, you know, I eat really healthy. I don't eat any junk food. I'm like, listen, when you have those food intolerances and you are you have leaky gut, the body can't tolerate it and matter how healthy. You just, you know, it's not to say that the foods are bad that you're yeah. eating. It's just your body can't tolerate right now because H. pylori jacked you up. <laughs> mm, mm, mm. It just takes some time to kind of get you there, and yeah, it and people don't want to hear it, and they want kind of something fixed quickly. But yeah, those food intolerances after either or just a GI bug, or you know, some people will say, "Oh, I went to you know wherever and we had some spinach." It's always spinach. Spinach <laughs> is that's been out too long will tear people up. Um, but it's it's funny, or like some from some food bar or something, and so. Yeah, a post-infectious or post-antibiotic or H. pylori can really have long-lasting effects that it takes a while to heal. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. Scary, scary. So, you know, seeing that we're on the topic of, you know, people eating only certain selections of food and, you know, very minimal, let's talk about misconceptions. So in communities of color, our community, we have a misconception that certain nutrient-dense foods aren't made for us or they don't taste good uh, because people are so used to the ultra-processed foods. So what do you think about this misconception? And like, how do you overcome that with your patients? It takes a lot to overcome. That is for sure. And it's, for me, it's sort of, I think, because I'm also able to use my street cred from being from the South mm-hmm, too. I'm like, do mm-hmm. you think that my mom and dad and grandmother from Birmingham, <laughs> Alabama, that I can, can eat anything that is tasteless? No, <laughs> right. this is not happening. I grew up eating the same thing you did with the fried chicken and the cornbread mm-hmm. and the collie. Like, so these are things that I remember all too well. So if I can tell you that now, A, I don't eat that anymore, but my food still tastes good mm-hmm. and I can fool my guy kids and my dad will even eat this. And he's like, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. I guess I don't need pork ribs today again. I can eat this instead. Right. Um, so I think it's sort of trying to just, I try to get them to buy in and just say, give me one meal. Just give me one meal. Let right. me change one thing a week. And I think once you show them that, and like I tell them too, people say that vegetables are bland, right? And they're like, oh, that doesn't have any taste. They said, this is gross. And I say, but what do you do to that chicken when it comes right. out of the packet? Right. If you right. eat that chicken out of the packet, it will be right. bland as well, right? Uh-huh. You have uh-huh. to do something to it to get that lovely flavor that our people love so much, right? That is contributing to your high blood pressure, and <laughs> however, and your diabetes. Uh-huh. I'm like, so... With that same thing, I say, you wouldn't eat that just that way, right? So why would you accept, like, think just the vegetable is going to be the same too? So the fun part is kind of getting them to eat things they never thought before. And also it's kind of things that making it taste similar. So one trick is instead of ground beef, when I got my cousin's husband was this one, I made stuffed mushrooms, but he thought it was stuffed with meat at the bottom. But it was walnuts and a food processor with mushrooms, walnuts, Bell peppers, uh, green, red, and yellow, and what else? And garlic. Put it in the food processor. It looks like nice and crumbled. It looks like ground beef. So stuff the mushrooms with that. But put you know you know regular fresh vegetables on top. Mm-hmm. And they thought that they were eating bell peppers. I used to make them stuffed with ground beef uh-huh. like ten mm-hmm. years ago. But now you know, and so it's showing them. He's like, wait, this isn't meat. It's good. And so I think fooling them a little bit works. Uh-huh. Right. Um, and showing them that it doesn't. Everything doesn't have to be in meat. And I think another thing that has sadly helped is kind of um, Chad Boswick. So mm-hmm. that my family, I'm like, they know I'm a gastroenterologist. They know it's colons, but then they're like, eh, we don't need to do that. Right. Whatever. <laughs> and so especially all of my, my male cousins, it's finally, you know, like, oh, wow, that's what you do. Right. And that, mm-hmm. that thing you told me you do. But I mm-hmm. think that was kind of a wake up call for us, because I think men of color, especially, I think that's sort of why we need more of us in practice in gastroenterology, because I think I'm able to get them to come in a little bit more. But I think that's one of the great ways that we're able to kind of pull people in a little bit. But I also use that as an opportunity to say, look, when they wake up after I've taken out, you know, six or seven polyps and they say, oh, my God, what can I do to make sure this doesn't happen again? And I tell them that we know from the World Health Organization that things that contribute to colon polyps and their carcinogenic are red meat and processed meat. 
So we know that at least getting you off of those meats we need to do. So getting up and eating bacon or sausage or ham or deli meats kind of every single day, we know that's something we have to we have to get off of. And so I use it from when I talk to them about food as well, I just kind of use it from that perspective as well. Because somebody in their family inevitably has had an amputation or for my men, I can I use erectile dysfunction. I'm like, do we want that? No, you don't want that, right? So you, you kind of just have to use what thing they that they will kind of relate to, um, what they've seen in their family, listen to their, and it just takes listening and listening to their family histories, who they talk about, kind of what complications they've seen, and just am able to correlate it. Because I think back to myself that didn't realize like how big of a deal high blood pressure and diabetes was before med school, and that it contributed to all of these other things that you know we see. All of, I mean, no one wants to have a stroke, but if you have uncontrolled hypertension, that's what's going to happen. And if you can just reduce the salt intake, I mean. That's sort of an easy thing to do. If you can reduce your weight and increase your fruits and your vegetables, that's not really a, a hard thing to do. Everybody wants to look and feel better too. So I think it's getting them, finding them at their level and finding that one thing you can change. And then when they start to see things, like see that weight drop off or they see their blood pressure change, they able to get off one of those blood pressure medicines, then you kind of got them at that point. So I think for me, it's usually just listening is the first thing is listening to see kind of what thing is that? What are they afraid of? Like, why? Why do they say they always oh, tell me, "Oh, I never go to the doctor. Maybe I'll come back to you, but I never go to the doctor." And figuring out why that is, and trying to just get them to just buy into one piece of it, and just say, "Just change this. Give me a week, and give me two weeks. If after two weeks I'm crazy, you can call me crazy." And and then they come back like, "You make me sick. You won." And so you know, it's sort of a game, you know. And it's just kind of finding that thing that will kind of connect. But I, and I think when people start to hear that, oh, that increases my risk for colon cancer. No one's ever told me that, that my, you know, eating a couple of strips of bacon a day was going to increase my risk for colon cancer. That by eating this, you know, because when you when people think about it, typically a deli sandwich for lunch isn't something that they think of as a necessarily a bad meal, right? You, you know, when you eat a double cheeseburger with bacon, then you inherently know, okay, this is not a great meal. But if you eat like a turkey sandwich with a slice of cheese on it as a bag of cheeses, you don't think of that as a big deal. And so when people, and I get people to just stop that thing. It's amazing kind of the changes they see. They're like, I didn't think I was doing that bad. Um, I'm like, it's that horrible, but probably you can do better goals. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I love that because, you know, a lot of times people think, you know, we have to be forgiving and we can go ahead and, you know, have, eat this and eat that and not realizing that it forms a habit. And then, mm -hmm. you know, the next thing you know, you're eating 10% nutrient dense foods and the other 90% is junk. So, you know, the yeah. fact that you're linking it back to, well, colon cancer is real, diabetes is real, high blood pressure is real, and you're someone of African American descent, and these are your risks, these are the numbers, like everything, like the haze starts to go away. Because I think a mm -hmm. lot of people think, oh, I'm young, it's not going to happen to me. But what happened to Chadwick Boseman, I'm saying first name, like, you know, me and him is on first name basis, know. <laughs> you know, like that really put perspective for some people. Mm -hmm. So it, right. I remember when I saw it, I was, I text Joanne, it was a Saturday morning. I was like, Joanne, she was like, girl, yeah. I know I saw, I heard about it last night. So even I think this week, Natalie, the cell read from how to be a player, you remember the actress, mm. she died this week of colon cancer. Oh, Wow. I didn't see that one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. oh. And she was young and too. It, I've been telling people like for the last couple, like even though that's why they changed the age in which people needed to get screened because we started seeing all these younger people and I was like getting freaked out. I'm like, wait a minute, it's not supposed to be happening. And some, you know, I'm not supposed to be seeing polyps. So sometimes when and you, you'll see people that come in that, you know, they're probably just constipated, but they've been having blood in the stool. So you have to check it out, right? So you do a colonoscopy. And these are like young people that have pretty nice sized colon polyps. It wasn't the reason for their bleeding, but since we're in there, I take them out. Is this the hemorrhoids or whatever caused them bleeding? But just imagine had they not come in, then over time, I mean, they were 30, I've had people 32, 33 years old with these colon polyps. Over five, 10 years, that would have become colon cancer. And you weren't, and back then, the screening wasn't until age 50. So that would have been a colon cancer. And so that's kind of what worries me about kind of with chat with Bozeman. It's like, okay, what, what was happening? Right, what symptom right. did he not talk about? What, what right. thing did in their family that they discuss? And 
So I think, so that's really important. So let let me ask you this. You've been saying constipation since the beginning. So what is your definition (laughs) of constipation? Because at the hospital, I always have arguments with nurses. What is your definition of constipation? So my definition is, so if people, there's incomplete emptying. So even if some people think they're not constipated, if they go every day, but they have those little pebbles, they look like rat poo, right? Right. That's still constipation. If you don't have a nice form stool in which you feel like you completely empty, then that's constipation. And so there's not like a necessary, like there's not, this is some people are like, oh, I I have to go twice a day. So that can be, that's kind of in the realm of normal. If somebody can go every other day, but they have nice complete form stools that are completely emptying, they feel they don't have bloating and abdominal pain throughout the day. So that can be also normal. But my definition is if you either you have pebbles, you're straining to have bowel movements and you're not feeling like you completely empty. You, you go to the bathroom, but you still feel full and bloated and have nausea and can't have full meals, you get to have early satiety or you feel full quickly because you're still full. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you for, cause you know, I was checking myself. I'm like, okay, Kim, <laughs> I'm just screening <laughs> myself here. And you yeah, know, people are people afraid to like, like, don't go for a week. And then they wonder why they have abdominal pain. I'm like, you have not been to the bathroom right, in right, over a week. Right. Like, I've been that way my whole life. I'm like, mm, that's, that's not, not normal. normal though. That's not normal. That's and people, people they're afraid to look. And I'll ask folks and, and you know, I'll say, um, what do your stools look like? Look like? And they're like, what do you mean? Do you look? When you get mm-hmm. up, you need to be looking. What does it look like? They don't How look. You, they people don't look. People are out by poop, apparently. They are. Yeah. I'm like, what yeah. color was it? Was it like this? And then they're like, what do you want me to do? I, say, I want you to turn around and look. That's what I want you to do. I want to know right. if it's red, if it's black. I want to, mm-hmm. these things matter. Right. So let's talk about modifiable risk factors. How do tobacco, chewing or smoking, drinking alcohol, or even smoking weed mm. impact say that. the GI tract? Say that. That's a good one. Well, I'll start with the easy ones. Like we know that chewing tobacco increases people's risk for throat and esophageal throat cancers, especially esophageal cancers. We know that smoking, of course, lung cancer, but also colon cancer actually too, um, increase your risk there. Alcohol, of course, is going to increase your risk for fatty liver and fatty liver over time leads to cirrhosis. Um, but sidebar on that, people get one of the number one causes in people getting liver transplants in the U.S. now is fatty liver. And fatty liver comes from kind of excess weight from people with metabolic syndrome and, and not having anywhere else to go. They just dump it off in the liver. So not just so it'll be people that come in that have never drank a day in their life or these little old, usually little old ladies that you know, have a little bit overweight, a little bit of excess weight, and they have high blood pressure, diabetes, and they have had, they have cirrhosis due to fatty liver. So it's literally they've eaten is from food. So that's a big deal, but that's the sidebar. Um, so alcohol can cause liver. Alcohol also increased risk for colon cancer. Um, what was the other one you said? Tobacco, smoking, weed. We have, and I hate to, weed will do cause people to have, we'll have people, a lot of people come in with cyclic vomiting. So Everybody uses it to kind of relax, to help them sleep, to help with nausea. But the converse of that is people can actually get a cycling vomiting syndrome from mm. weed. What? Um, so that's another problem that people can have. And then like, and so they nobody wants to hear that. They're like, we're supposed to, it helps with that sometimes. I'm like, but oh usually gosh. though, what is it doing to you? So that part, that can, can cause a cyclic vomiting. It, we have not seen an associated with increased risk of colon cancer though. But the cyclic vomiting is a kind of a big thing and kind of having, instead of have causing, getting rid of nausea, causing people to have more nausea. So that was probably the biggest one there. But yeah, all other ones are definitely increased risk of uh, malignancy. Mm-hmm. I never okay. knew that weed could cause that. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's things that a lot of people know. Nope. Mm-hmm. And nobody wants to hear it. <laughs> wow. Wow. When they come in to see you with their chronic, chronic vomiting, but it's called cyclic vomiting syndrome. Yeah. Wow. That is amazing. So let's talk about GI cancers, gastric cancer, gallbladder, pancreatic cancer. So I know recently Alex Trebek died, mm-hmm. grew up yeah. with Alex, who I know. grew up with him, who wasn't watching Jeopardy. So, you know, it has brought like a lot of awareness and people are asking questions. So what are some of the signs and symptoms, not only of pancreatic cancer, but of GI cancers that people need to know in general? Yeah. I'll say in general, GI cancers are hard ones because a lot of them don't have symptoms until it gets to the point where it's too late. 
And so, for example, with the gastric cancer, so we need to talk about kind of risk factors. So if somebody, so like you've had H. pylori, that's a risk factor for gastric cancers. If you're from an Asian country, they have a higher rate of gastric cancers. And that's because of a lot of it because of kind of the sort of the foods they eat. There's a lot of curing. There's a lot of smoked food. So there's a higher risk there. If anybody, sometimes this is rare, but people will have caustic ingestions where they try to, they've tried to commit suicide and they've drank like bleach or some type of acid that you can get a changes in mucosa and those increase your risk for gastric cancers and esophageal cancers. Gastric cancers are, are tough ones because they're not things that we necessarily screen for because they're not as as common. There's no like screening mechanism. One thing that we think can can sometimes cause gastric cancer is something called intestinal metaplasia. So like I said, if anybody comes in with like chronic abdominal pain, bloating, I always check for H. pylori. So one way we check for that is taking biopsies of the stomach. And sometimes it'll come back and be negative for H. pylori, but it'll say chronic intestinal metaplasia. And so that's a pre kind of a, a risk factor for um, gastric cancer too. So we will have patients to come back in every three to five years to do kind of gastric mapping. Um, it's a low risk, um, but there's a risk there. The With signs, so the biggest thing for all of these I'm going to talk about is talk to your doctors, go to your doctors and talk to your family. When it comes to colon cancer, colon cancers can range from having no symptoms at all. Um, and it's kind of based on where it is in the colon too, because people will say, I don't need a colonoscopy. I don't have any symptoms. I'm like, well, you can't feel a polyp. A polyp is a small kind of little, it's a tiny little thing that we take out. So you don't feel that. And we, the goal is to take out the polyp before it turns into a cancer. And it turns into a cancer is when you need chemotherapy and surgical intervention, all these things. Um, that's usually when it's not curative and it's spread outside of the colon. So sometimes symptoms to think about or some if you have blood in the stool, that's a big one. So you have to look at your stool to know if there's blood there, right? <laughs> so looking at the stool to see if there's any blood or any dark black stools is meaning there's some bleeding it's somewhere in the GI tract. So red or black stool. Also paying attention to changes in your bowel habits. So if you normally have nice full stools, but now you're not having many stools at all, or if there's any type of change, changes in bowel habits are things you should talk to your doctor about. And the other big thing there is literally is talking to your family. So I can't tell you how many of our patients, we do not like talking about our health problems with our family. We no. keep it, it's like it's close to the vest. That's we true. do not want to talk about it. But that's is super important because let's say in Chadwick Boseman's family, they have a first, let's say his cousin or his brother, if he had one, that means they have a first degree relative that died of colon cancer earlier. So they're going to have to come in and be screened much earlier than someone who does not have a family history. Or if somebody has a family history of high risk polyps, which means adenomatous polyps, which we tell you when we give you your medical, your colonoscopy reports back, right? These are important because your family history, it tells your family member, okay, they're at higher risk for colon cancer because you are a colon polyps because you have a family member with colon polyps, right? So for example, my grandmother had colon cancer. So that means all of my aunts have to be screened earlier. And so if my aunts have colon polyps, that means we all have to be screened earlier. And so you paying, just knowing these things about your family are super important. So we know, to, so if you just tell you, you don't have to know these, the, the, the rules are, you tell your doctor. And so we know. So these are important too, because I'll have people all the time that say, I ask them about colon cancer or stomach cancers, because I want to know what your risks are, what I should be thinking about. And they'll say, oh, she has some sort of cancer, but I don't know what kind. And that is the most frequent thing we hear. Or people say, well, it started here, but then it went here and here and here. And so people just having them to understand that that's a metastatic spread. So the primary is the big thing. So people knowing what their family members have had. So talking, I think, is super important. Um, because I want to do your colonoscopy before you get to the point where you have bloody, you know, bloody stools or before you get kind of what's called a gastric outlet obstruction from GI cancers where you can, nothing will go through. Other GI cancers, oh, gallbladder cancer. So those are pretty rare too. But one of the things we pay attention to, let's say everybody ends up getting imaging. They go to the emergency room for something at some point, right? Mm -hmm. And so normally these are things that are kind of found incidentally. Like they are looking for something else and you'll say, oh yeah, and you have a gallbladder polyp. It's not, it's, so it's a thing that we have to pay attention to because they normally are benign, but in this rare case, they get bigger. And that gives us, that tells us they need to have your gallbladder removed if it gets greater than one centimeter, because that's a higher risk for a gallbladder cancer, right? If they stay stable in size, then it's fine. But it's one of those things that you just, you can't just brush out if you have to pay attention to. 
Let's see, biliary tract polyp cancers are also rare, but can be seen in people that have kind of um, inflammatory bowel disease. So if you have a family history of inflammatory bowel disease, letting your doctor know like ulcerative colitis or Crohn's, something that in your family, we want to know, so we want to make sure that we look at your risk factors based on the symptoms you're telling us. So these are important to know about. Pancreatic cancer is another tough one because we don't have a screening mechanism. But if we know, if you tell us you have a family history of pancreatic cancer, you have a history of chronic pancreatitis. Another big key is somebody has a new onset of diabetes because the pancreas controls kind of um, your, your glucose and insulin. So if somebody has a new onset of diabetes, it makes me think, hmm, let me look, some, let me check this out. New kind of onset of weight loss would be kind of a sign for any cancer. If you're eating normally, but you're losing like kind of unintentional weight loss. When it gets to the point where it's obstructive, then people's eyes turn yellow because that's called that's jaundice because there's an obstruction from the head of the pancreas. But that's normally when things have gone too far. And also figuring like when you, it's my family finds out there's a genetic disorder because those things put you at higher risk for certain types of cancers like Lynch syndromes and that sort of thing. We we that's why you everybody that's my biggest thing is please talk to your families. Um, so. And I know we don't, so I say it every time I do like any type of talk to kind of people of color is and everybody because I think that's kind of a a thing from people in general. No one wants to talk about whatever medical is for some reason it's taboo. I don't know why, but <laughs> but it's so important to talk about whatever genetic predispositions you have, medical history because it gives us an idea. So if a patient tells me they had a mother with breast cancer or a grandmother with uterine cancer, some it gives me an idea. I'm like, huh, you sounds like you have a Lynch syndrome. I'm gonna do a genetic testing on you and send you to a geneticist so that we can figure out. And therefore we know the risk factors and what markers you hold. So we know what you're at risk for. So a lot of things we don't screen for. We screen for colon cancer, we screen for breast cancer, we screen for sort of prostate cancer. If you're a smoker, then you screen for lung cancer. Um, but there's these other ones, there's not, there's no good screening test for it because they're not as common. But when they happen, they're dramatic. Like when gastric cancer happens, it's dramatic. So anything you're feeling is just having people to have a doctor you're comfortable with. So that when you have these symptoms, you have somebody that listens and you don't feel like you're, you know, just complaining. And when you are able, you can, and you can speak your mind and say, this is weird now. And they can pay attention to it. So if you're from a third world country, like I am, I'm from Haiti. And we don't have no records of what, Uh you know, like what was going on with my grandparents, you know, I know only as far as my, my parents and my aunts and my uncles. So for someone like myself who don't have any kind of family history in that sort, Mm -hmm. and I have a history of H. pylori. So what signs and symptoms would you say, you know, someone like me would look at that says you need to go to the doctor right now? Yeah. Let's see. Kind of like some big ones that are kind of cancer risk are unintentional weight loss. That's a big one. So that means you're eating normally, but you're losing weight. Other big ones are for kind of GI cancers are kind of changes in bowel habits. So let's say for the last five years, you were normal. You would get up every morning, you had a cup of coffee, you went to the bathroom, but you notice over you're doing the same thing, but now you, it just takes you a week, a week and a half. And let's say your stools used to be nice and full, but now they're pencil um, they'll call them pencil type stool. So they're coming out real thin. That's a concern. So that's a change in the caliber of your stool. You're starting having bloody bowel movements. And most people will just chalk it up and say, oh, I just have hemorrhoids. I'm like, well, how do you know? Well, you know, that's what it is. That's what it, has anybody ever looked or like, how, how do you know they're hemorrhoids? You know, that's what normally happens is just hemorrhoids, right? And sometimes I, I've diagnosed a rectal cancer because he thought he just had hemorrhoids. But we did it. I'm wow. like, uh, when I do a rectal exam, that don't feel like a hemorrhoid. Let's take a look and do a colonoscopy and that was a rectal cancer. Wow. Um, so these are things that, those are the big ones, I think. Paying attention to weight loss, paying, paying attention to kind of early satiety, so feeling full quickly. And stools. Stools are important to look at. Wow. Wow. Very. So, you know, seeing that we're on the topic of the stomach, let's talk about gas. I have heard so many people say, oh, it's just gas. I'll drink a little tea and it will go away. Or, oh, you know, I just have a little heartburn. I'll drink a little milk. So why can this be deleterious? The problem is if you've never told a doctor about it, if nobody's ever checked it out, sometimes, yes, it is just a little bit of gas. That's great. But if you don't, if you never told anyone about it, you could have H. pylori actually, right? Because you can have small bowel overgrowth, which can be cause it can be causing your gas. Your heartburn could, you know, you can have a gastric outlet obstruction or gastroparesis. And that's why you have what's called heartburn. You can have 
what am I thinking of? You can have a, a problem with motility, esophageal motility, and that's actually what you're calling heartburn. You can have kind of a Barrett's esophagus, which is a precancer is for um, esophageal cancer um, from your heartburn. So these are things that you just, that's why I still go back to communicating with your physician, having a physician that you can talk to and communicating. And so we can decide, okay, if it is just that, then that's great. But if you've never had it checked out at least once or figure somebody to talk through it to see if that's actually the, the case. Because sometimes people will say, oh, it's just heartburn and I do this. I'm like, well, does, does that thing help? They're like, well, no, not really. So I'm like, mm, how can we really say that it's just heartburn, but the thing you're doing for it doesn't even help? So that's hard to say. Or if I say, they say, oh, it's just gas. And then we, you know, go in and find that there's, you know, an obstruction somewhere. They have somebody with Crohn's disease and they have a stricture or something like that. So I think people don't realize the body has a remarkable way of compensating. And so you'll have people that have a stricture in the esophagus or an esophageal cancer. And then they come into the point and now their families notice their lost weight. And you said, they say, you know what? I realized that he only drinks liquids. He didn't takes like soft foods or um, drinks broth. And he goes, oh, well, I stopped eating solid foods because it, it would, I couldn't get it down. I would have to vomit it back up. So you're having dysphagia to solids and have been for kind of a year. I mean, so you just you just compensated and stopped doing those things because it was causing you symptoms. You go in, there's a big esophageal cancer because that's why you couldn't swallow. And that's why only liquids would go down. So these are things that I think people don't think about the fact that we can comp we compensate so well. And you don't recognize how bad it is and sometimes until somebody until you bring it up to somebody else. So it's just Having a physician that you trust and can talk to, to kind of go through things and kind of just let somebody you can have an open dialogue with and say, and sometimes it may be just nothing, not nothing that's a big deal, but it's better to say it mm -hmm. and put it out there and to, right. because sometimes it is. Exactly. Um, sometimes things are a lot bigger deal um, than people kind of imagine. Like people don't think about extra intestinal symptoms of inflammatory bowel disease. So you can have symptoms that don't have anything to do with the bowel. People can have rashes on their arms that are can be pretty bad and cause kind of joint pains. And but they're telling me, oh well my bowel movements are okay with for my, you know, Crohn's disease. And I say, well what's that? I see something peeking from under your shirt there. What's that on your arm? Like, oh I just have a rash and just putting a steroid cream on I'm like, that's <laughs> not gonna help actually. That's associated with your Crohn's disease. So there's things that don't seem to be related if to the naked eye. But so gastroenterologist, I'm going to know that there's pyoderma gangrenosum on your arm. That's not just a simple little rash. That's only going to get worse. That means we need to change your entire treatment for your Crohn's disease. Right. So it has so many kind of other layers to things that you may not be thinking about that's like, so it's really important to kind of bring it all up, even if it's something small. If it's something small, we'll make fun of you a little bit. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so what I'm getting from what you're saying overall is number one, ignorance is not bliss. Number not two, <laughs> number two, you know, you stated earlier that you don't expect us who haven't been trained the way that you've been trained to know these things. So it's really important that we have a good open communication with our providers. Oh, yeah. So, you know, honestly, you're just like changing the whole entire way that I'm like thinking about things now. So let it out. Yeah. Yeah. Patients always say, this may be a dumb question. I'm like, it's not a dumb question. Let me right. hear it. It's not, or people say, oh, this is so gross. I'm like, I'm a gastroenterologist. I I've seen it. I've seen it all. Like, it cannot be gross to me. Like your boo-boo is not unique. <laughs> it's not unique to anything I've seen. No. I'm like, this is my whole life. I talk about poop all day long to the point where I have to stop myself. I'm like, this is not a patient. We are not in clinic. Stop asking this random person. Well, did you poop today? Mm -hmm. And it's not okay out in the regular world. So... So I know you, you may have touched, oh, you did. It's not a may. You did touch on this um, throughout the whole episode on um, some of the preventions and ways to reduce your risk factors for GI cancers. Is there anything you want to add to that in addition to what you said prior? Um, let's see. I would say no drink, increasing your water intake. Most people do not drink enough water. So increasing your water intake, trying, people worry about their protein, like in carbs, like it is, mm -hmm. you know, a second religion, but no one worries <laughs> about their fiber. Mm -hmm. So I would say increasing your fiber intake and not fiber supplements. I mean, fiber and real food. So trying to increase fruits and vegetables every day, even if there's a fro, I'll take it how I can get it. If it's a frozen vegetable, I will take it. 
just trying to increase fruits and, and vegetables in the diet every single day. I can't tell you how many people I see that will say, oh, I probably haven't had fruits in the last couple of weeks or vegetables. I don't eat vegetables routinely or, oh, I don't like water, um, so I don't drink water. So these are very important for colon health overall, um, getting more fruits, more vegetables, and just trying your best to get off of processed meats. If we can get off of processed meats and red meats, and it's okay to have a meatless day every right. once in a while, trying to get more kind of plant-based and just kind of focusing on saying, I'm going to try to get three fruits and three vegetables a day and some beans a couple of times a week. Just trying to be more cognizant of kind of feeding your gut because your gut is kind of the kind of the cornerstone of all of your other health. The so, gateway is what I know, call yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. So Dr. Lester, if people want to get in contact with you, how can they do so? Where can you be reached? Several ways. So my website is guttheoryhealth.com and that has all the ways that could in contact with me with my email info at guttheoryhealth.com. Uh, my phone number here at the office is 888-755-GUT1. So that's 4881 or GUT1, G-U-T-1. I'm on Instagram, uh, Dr. Underscore Janice Laster. On Facebook, Janice Laster, MD, everywhere. So, however you would like to get in touch, but the web the website is super easy. Gives you some more information about those weight loss procedures we talked about, kind of nutrition and gut health. Some articles that I've written are just located there too. If you want to nerd out with me a little bit, awesome. Well, everyone, we were so happy to have Dr. Laster here with us today, as she has stated several times. If you feel like something is wrong. <laughs> Go see your doctor (laughs) and get it checked out. As usual, please be sure to rate us, review, and subscribe, and to tell somebody else to listen on on our podcast. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.